Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Pot and Point podcast. My name is Vladimir Bosanitz, and I'm here with my co-host, Mike McPhee. Mike, say hi. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. This is a podcast where we're going to talk about sports, business, the business of sports, and everything in between. We'll address news, we'll talk about what is interesting, and we'll put our spin and analysis on it. Yeah, we're expanding our coverage by bringing in some interesting people who are in sports and related to sports, and we can provide more insight into the topics that are relevant. A little about us. We're great friends. We're dads. We've both worked for interesting companies over the years. And most importantly, we were both college athletes, so our stories will focus on that. That's right, Vlad. We're also bringing this to you from Mobile Studios. Vlad is in Seattle, the Jet City. I'm in the Mile High City, also known as Denver, Colorado. But we have a global sports perspective, and we're going to talk about all sports, everything that we see that is interesting, and we hope you'll join us in our sports travels each and every week. All right, Vod, let's kick this off. Let's go, Mike. All right, Vlad, here we are. Welcome back. Back in the pod, Mike. Feels great. Back in the pod. And we have a yet another twist where we're going to be focused. And we're going to focus, for our listeners, we're going to be focused just on NCAA things. Uh, in speed round, we're going to tackle the injunction that the NCAA has asked of a ruling, and then they're trying to kick something up to the Supreme Court. So we'll talk about that. And then, Vlad, you're going to take us through a super interesting finding or a white paper by a professor talking about how revenues are have been applied over this last 15 years in kind of a longer view than that, right? Yeah. Uh, and then and then we're going to continue with our interview series. We're going to interview a premier expert attorney who's been working in the NCAA space for a long time. And he's going to educate us from his point of view on what's currently happening on name, image, and likeness, which, as our listeners know, we've talked about on, on several shows. Um, just a, a bunch happening there in a dynamic space. So, And then I've got, come on, man, Vlad. So we're going to do this. You ready to get started? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Our first speed round story, we're going to talk about the NCAA petitioning the Supreme Court for an audience. And as we said at the top, a lot going on in the NCAA. So name and likeness is changing. Literally, things are coming out kind of almost on a daily basis. And we'll talk more with Greg on that. And then NCAA just also ruled there's extra eligibility for athletes for the rest of the year. Remember, we talked a couple weeks back that the fall athletes got granted just one more round trip, one more extra year of eligibility. Well, NCAA said all athletes get that through the year. So that's going to do do what it does on, on rosters and decisions and things, right? And with that, Mike, also what we learned uh, in our conversation with, with another interview is that that was not just for seniors, but it was given to all athletes sort of across the board, which, which really, I think, puts a kind of kink in the, in the planning, I think, for a lot of these kids in schools, right? Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it prior to now. You almost kind of just think of like the, the, the seniors are going to stick around one more time and everybody else will be up, like the juniors would be with the seniors with them, right? But I guess right. that says every every athlete gets one more time. They get to play five years, right? right. Instead of the, the right. four that, that's been historically true. That'll be interesting to see how it plays out, right? Uh, over this coming, well, that's going to be more than just this year. That's going to go the next couple of years. Right. But um, this this story about the NCAA petitioning for a Supreme Court audience, it runs counter to where things are going with name, image and likeness. So a name, image and likeness, as we've said, just to reset, there's a movement afoot where, where athletes are going to be compensated for activities that they may be doing off the field. So it could be in, in, in as influencers, they may be a deal with a local restaurant, whatever they're doing. At the same time, though, the NCAA has effectively lost a ruling that uh, at a lower court whereby college football players and college basketball players are now effectively allowed to have proper internships and proper off-season jobs. But let's give some background here, Vlad. Decades ago, decades ago, big-time athletes, big-name athletes were getting jobs from boosters that weren't really jobs, right? right? They're, they're, right. they're getting super paid for, for, for tasks that we could all, all of us probably know, almost a laughable instance of, you know, making sure the sprinklers turn on on the golf course or something, you right. know, like those types of things. We've heard the stories. So the NCAA basically limited these premier athletes saying, you, you almost can't do anything in your off-season. You almost can't get that internship around your business degree or whatever. So what's happened at the lower courts is, is effectively that's been ruled that athletes can now get those internships. They can now go do these off-season things. The NCAA is saying, whoa, wait a minute, that, that might foul up our amateurism. And they want to kick this up to the Supreme Court. 
Yeah. Vlad, you, you had experience here in the States as a major college basketball player. Take us through what that was in your time, or what do you know about this space? Well, Mike, um, I, I would like to just make one slight correction there. I wasn't a major college basketball player. I played for a major college basketball program. Let's just make it. Let's just make that clear. <laughs> Come on now. Now you're now you're just being humble. You're being humble. Hey, Georgetown Hoyas, brother. I wish I wish I could say that I was a major college basketball player. But anyway, you know, in, in my mind, I was in my mind, I was. Hey, you're on the yeah. roster. Remember, we got your card out there on yeah, eBay. Exactly. Brother. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, a couple of things are happening here. What with, like with anything else, I think what the NCAA is doing is, you know, basically doing their best to try to preserve the system as long as possible and mm-hmm. trying to sort of, throw, you know, throw a kink into this name, image and likeness as much as possible. One of the big terms around this is this concept of amateurism, right. which is actually not defined anywhere. No, and very squishy. Think, right. It's it's a super squishy term. Um, there are different interpretations of what amateurism means. Yeah. And I think what they're trying to do here is force the Supreme Court to essentially agree with them and agree you know, to a definition of amateurism that mm-hmm. benefits them. And this has to also uh, go down the route of, you know, you know, can the players unionize? Are they considered employees oh, sure. of the university? Sure. Um, if they are, there's a whole slew of, you know, benefits and things like that that the university has to provide to 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 them as they were any employee. Yeah. And so I think I think this is another sort of way of them really struggling to find ways to, in any way possible, derail this train, which I think in my mind is already already left the station, which is which is called name, image, and likeness. Yeah, if you put that bigger wrapper around this, that may, maybe this is just one more play. They're trying to reestablish footing, you know, reestablish where they've been for decades. Um, but the, the bigger gra- the ground is shaking around all these things, right? So it's it's name, image, and likeness. It's amateurism definition. There's another movement afoot here, Vlad. We're not going to go into it, but there's a movement that they may approve transfers, a one-time transfer for any athlete at any age. Right. right. So right now and, and free pass, you can go in conference, out of conference. And and we've heard you could always kind of do that outside the major sports, but the major sports put in some some tighter rules around you can't transfer in conference or somebody on our schedule or you got to sit out a year. Or you, or you have to and, get an exception or something exceptions like that. Yeah. and all these things. But but that's a movement afoot right now, too, that they may give all college athletes a one time pass. And that yeah. just at any time you can say, I leave here today by, by a certain date because you can't foul up the year. So it's effectively by a certain date you had to file. And the next year you could play in a different uniform on a different campus. Yeah, right? I think I think over the, over the course of the next you know year or a couple of months or maybe not a couple of months but you know a few months or a year or so, we're going to start hearing terms like cartel, you know things, <laughs> yeah. you know th- 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 things like that, which yeah. which are you know really going to define you know whether the NCAA is a monopoly and and whether it behaves like like one. Yeah, um, you know the term of exploitation is going to be thrown around a lot from an economic point of view, right? What 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 exploitation is. Um, and there's going to be some interesting discussions there. And again, I think what the NCAA would hate is to abide by 50 different rules, you know, meaning each state has its own rule. And they're trying to push this to the federal level as soon as possible, which I, I would argue actually makes sense for both sides. Bring some um, order again, to bring some order to a very complicated space. Yeah, bring space, bring right? some bring some order to it. Yeah, but but again, you know, the NCAA here has the deep pockets. They can spend money. They can you know lobby people. They can hire lawyers. Mm-hmm. The athletes don't really have a say here. And mm-hmm. and I do wonder, you know, how this is all going to shake shake out for the for the athletes. And, yeah. and we talked about this in our last couple of shows. Um, and this is just another example of that. Vlad, I'm going to link over to a conversation I've had offline, and I think it's going to resonate here as we're trying, we have this business bent to all these sports issues. And I've talked to a number of friends on, and you know, both of us have our Silicon Valley background, but we've both moved away. So we, our touch points are, are just a little different. It's not as day to day. I've talked to a number of Silicon Valley friends that say, you know what this pandemic has done is it's accelerated a lot of trends. It's ex- things that were on the horizon, the timelines to when they were going to become more in effect have all shortened and condensed. Yeah. And, and I want to apply that over here is that 
there's been little things percolating. You had the Ed O'Bannon case is, is percolated the last couple of years again. It was settled, I don't know, maybe even a decade ago. And that was when he was trying to do the things around the NCAA software on EA Sports and his name and likeness and that. Yep. Yep. You had the Northwestern Union case where they lost out five years ago to starting a union at Northwestern University. But different things have been in, you know, in effect over the last couple of years. And I wonder, are we in another thing that's just going to accelerate right now? And more decisions are going to be made as changes are coming on the horizon. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that, Mike. But I also think that, um, you know, we now have kind of a body of work building up around this that, okay. you know, you know, at some point, you know, it's not just one case. It's not the Northwestern and Ed O'Bannon case, right? You know, at some point it becomes, you know, these five cases and then these eight cases and these 10 cases. And it becomes just sort of a bigger kind of thing, right? Collective that, that action. pushes it forward, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, like I said earlier, you know, we've 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 seen some federal legislation come through the Congress and, you know, through the Senate also. And I, I, there is some momentum here. My worry, to be perfectly honest, is what does COVID do? And are there other priorities in the courts, in politics, in our country that might supersede some of these discussions, right? There's Which that. may or may not be good. Uh, but either way, as you and I know, Mike, July first next year, Florida law comes into comes into play, and then California, Colorado, and others. And right. so, uh, you know, if if they sit on it for too long, it's it's not going to benefit them. Yeah, the laws are going to come uh, beyond the books officially. So, Vlad, I I just thought we'd you know surface this one to to start our show. And um, there's a lot of moving parts, man. There is, parts. there is, and so this brings us, you know, this is a good segue into the next one, which um, which kind of is along the lines of of this, but focuses more on the distribution of the revenue within the conferences and within the schools from the sort of two revenue generating sports, basketball and football to other sports. Um, and as you mentioned at the top of the hour, Mike, this is a study that was done by three Northwestern professors and one Michigan professor. Uh, the title of the study is Who Profits from Amateurism? So again, amateurism, here's our here's our term, right? That's going to come um, you know, into, into play more and more. Yep. Yep. And they're talking about this, this economic term of, you know, rent sharing in modern college sports. And, and, and rent sharing is you know, essentially, what 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 it what it means? It's you know, revenue dis, dis distribution from part of the organization that you know collects the rent, right? Okay. Uh, you know, rent essentially in this case means revenue, and and then dis, and then distributes it throughout throughout you know the rest of the system, and to, to what, entities what, that don't generate their own revenue, effectively. Yeah, right? exactly, yeah. exactly, and and it's looking and it's looking at sort of how the revenue flows, who's yeah. generating it, and then who is yeah. actually benefiting from it, and. The premise here is that the study looked at at a, at a span of about 13 years, so from 2006 to 2019, and it looked at revenue across across conferences and and also colleges. And what it found essentially was that during that time, the two sports, basketball and 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 football, were you know primarily the two revenue generating sports for all intents and purposes in in all of these these schools yet yes. those two sports you know supported financially the the rest of the university sort yes. of athletic department and their and their and their efforts what's yes. interesting also here is that based on their study they found that roughly 50% of all athletes in football and basketball Come from you know minority back backgrounds or poor households. Yes. However, the rest of the sports. So if you think of all the other sports, you know swimming and lacrosse and you know all of that other stuff, only about eleven percent of athletes in in those sports come from those demographics. And mm. so the conclusion here is that you have a group, a certain demographic group that's generating essentially a hundred percent of the revenue. But most of it is actually benefiting people who are wealthier and in this case, you know, whiter. I'd hate to say that, right? And there's mm. economic evidence that this is happening also. So again, you know, this is one of one of these long kind of lists of things that I think just showcase the fact that, you know, the time might be ripe really for the NCAA model to be to be to be changed. And 
not only that, but Mike, and we can talk about this, you know, until the cows come home. But you know, the revenues have been steadily inc- increasing, right? Oh yeah. And and they were look at they were looking at the IRS filings of of the Power Five from 2008 to 2018. So you know, basically a 10 year period. Yeah. Um, revenues have increased over 260 percent. Incredible. Okay? Incredible. Which is which is a huge amount of dollars. And what we've also seen is that in that in that time in that time time frame compared to their professional sort of you know colleagues if you will professional com- conferences share somewhere along the lines of 50% of all of their revenue in the NCAA it's about 7% so a huge discrepancy not only what's coming to the athletes but even once it sort of comes to them in forms of benefits who is really benefiting from it thoughts mike what do you think about this yeah, a number of things to unpack there, and and I want to maybe put one more data element on the table. Didn't we see Vlad in that study that the revenues overall grew from like five billion to nine point eight billion in that period uh, across these sports uh, in that in that period? So it's just just wow, just huge, and that that gives one more data point to that two hundred sixty percent increase for just the Power Five conference schools yeah. alone, um, but. But, you know, you've got the other thing that's just a little bit below the covers is like coaches' salaries have just jumped off the page in that same window, right? And so that's yet another, it's not rent sharing because those folks are involved in that sport, but it's one more version of an inequity, right? You get an inequity where you've got these athletes that are are, are not participating per se as directly that we can see. They're participating in a way they've got more support around them. They've got a nicer building to play in. They're wearing different gear, but not they're not participating at the way that the power brokers are, right? We oh, 100%. We, we, we see that. Yeah. And then yeah. this this study highlights the inequities of the these universities have have used those power teams, which is effectively what it comes down to. It's like yeah. so it's Kentucky yeah. and the SEC basketball, right? That's the power teams that drive those revenue to effectively fund the rest of the university sports. And that just, the data speaks for itself. Yeah. And um, wow, I, I hadn't really seen it in that stark of terms. And, and thanks to the Northwestern professors putting, you know, that economic study, I think you said a guy from Michigan was on there too, right? Yeah, yeah. And and you mentioned you mentioned also the, um, the salaries. I think there was something revealed recently from some of these filings that, you know, Nick Saban makes close to ten million bucks a year. Right? That's right. It's, uh, it's intense. There was a story recently of him. You know, you know, getting COVID and all this sort of hoops that um, the University of Alabama jumped through to kind of get his test. You know, by a private plane over to some testing facility so he can be there at the at the game. And just yeah. when you see this amount of you know money, it it kind of got me curious. Um, I, I I looked at you know how much the Lakers coach makes and make made Uh-oh. last year and and Uh-oh. the um, Miami Heat coach made the two of them combined make about five million dollars bracing oh my right and oh my. And, and it just and it, and again it's a different sport so maybe we should look I don't know how much the football co- coaches make in the NFL right but but my point is you know this is like on a different level entirely right um, right and uh, it's 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 time for some kind of a you know adaptation here that uh, that is long long overdue and it and it just makes you wonder if if because we talk, we, we think about this around name, image, and likeness. When you think about if you're going to start, if you start paying athletes, would you pay the star quarterback or the star shooting guard differently from the rest of that school's players? And then yeah. across different schools and all the other iniquities that might arise. And, and, and I don't have a silver bullet for that. But it does beg the question is, is should these power, uh, power uh, sports be decoupled from the rest of the university mission? Because... And, and, and break that funding model whereby the other sports, they, they just draw from university funding because it's it's a part of the enrichment of the athlete, part of the university experience, part of why you want to come to play a sport at whatever school. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the silver bullet is here, but it does it does beg that question. Yeah. Know? And and part of the answer, Mike, for that specific question lies into then are there employees of the university or are they not, right? Because and if they're now separated totally. from the athletic endeavor, if you will, sorry, from the academic and 
Dever, then That's that means it. that there's something else, right? And then, and, and then, how do you solve for Title Nine? Ex- and exactly. how do you solve for its 85 scholarships for football? Yeah. And and then, you know, as we know from our, our conversation with uh, some other folks in this industry, like soccer gets under 10 scholarships mandated by the NCAA. Can't have more, even N- if the funds are there. Nine and a half. Yeah, nine, nine, and, nine, and, nine and, and a half. half right? Spread across however that team right. decides to spread them. So there's just all these rules. I think we're just Vlad. We're just this thing is ripe for innovation, new a, a new set of rulings, and and for our listeners, they see it all and around them too, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yep, good deal. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have an interview with Greg Clifton. Uh, Greg is a principal in the Phoenix, Arizona office of Jackson Lewis, and he's also the co-leader of the collegiate and professional sports practice at the firm. He has advised numerous professional franchises on general labor and employment issues. He has also handled Title IX investigations and compliance issues for NCAA and NAIA member institutions and worked extensively in the area of agent regulation and enforcement in professional and college sports and provided counsel on issues relating to NCAA and NAIA amateurism issues, so things that we just this discussed, as well as athlete eligibility questions. Also, Greg has served as an expert witness in matters involving agents' work and responsibilities. He was also a former agent, as well as athlete compensation issues. So welcome to the pod, Greg. Vlad and I really enjoy doing the Pod on Point podcast, and we hope that you like listening to us gab about our favorite subjects, sports, pop culture, and business. We hope that you also learn something from our experiences and that we bring the forefront important news about the industries that in many ways shape our lives each and every day. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends, family members, and colleagues about it. Write a review and let us know what you think about our work and how we can make it better. You can also suggest stories that we should be picking up. Our contact information is in the show notes. Thank you for your time and thank you for letting us know how we can be on point. Okay, we're back, and uh, we're welcoming to the show Greg Clifton. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. You know, Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. We, we like to say where we're checking in from. So uh, where I'm checking in from Denver. Vlad's there in Seattle. And uh, where are you joining us today? I'm joining you from uh, lovely Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. I love it. Very cool. Well, uh, we gave a brief intro to our listeners, but just would love to hear in your own words a little bit about your background. And then just the second part of our, our first part of the question here is, um, how'd you get involved in the collegiate sports legal world? Sure. I appreciate it. Um, a little bit of my background, I, I went to law school. And at the time when I went to law school, about 100 years ago, uh, <laughs> the way if you wanted to work in sports was to be an agent. Uh, there was not the number of attorneys that are working as there are today in the area of professional sports for teams or organizations. And there weren't a lot of attorneys in same, similarly on the college level in the college space. Okay. Um, so I was, uh, entered the, the world of sports initially through my law firm that I currently work for Jackson Lewis, where I did labor, uh, work in contract negotiations and things like that. And then I had an opportunity, uh, to join Bob Wolf, who was kind of a legendary sports agent going back in time. Uh, I had an opportunity to join him as an attorney on his staff and kind of fulfilled the dream of working in sports and had the chance to work with him literally side by side for three years until unfortunately passed away suddenly from a heart attack. And then mm-hmm. I stayed in the Asian industry uh, representing a broader range of clients from the four major sports to some entertainers and, uh, and, and music groups and things like that, uh, NASCAR teams and, and, and other opportunities um, for about the next 15 years. Uh, and then about 10 years ago, the law firm Jackson Lewis, where I started, uh, was kind enough to give me a call. Uh, they were interesting in starting, interested in starting a sports practice. And they oh. asked me if I wanted to come back and try to spearhead our efforts. And my question was, who do you have in sports currently? And they said, no one. And I said, okay, this is going to be very <laughs> entrepreneurial. Uh, and I knew I was fortunate enough to have an ongoing relationship with a number of the senior partners at the firm. So I had a, a really high trust level with them. And I also had a high trust level with the level of the, the work that the firm did is probably the preeminent labor and employment law firm in the country. Um, so I was able to piggyback on that success and those relationships uh, to start a sports practice. And literally over the last 10 years, what we've been able to do is I essentially switched sides from being an agent on the individual athlete side. Mm-hmm. I've switched sides and I'm now working on the management side where, where we are representing professional teams 
um, and we're also representing colleges as well as college conferences in a broader array of legal issues, uh, essentially reflecting all the things that we do as a law firm, from a wage and hour issues, from immigration issues, from contract issues, arbitration cases. So essentially anything that our firm does, we now do with a sports twist uh, through our sports practice. Yeah, and um, Greg, this is not a big world, correct? Um, you know, what, what's the landscape of sort of, you know, sports attorneys across, across the country? Well, you know, that's a great question. It, it is a, very much a niche area, and it's really become a specialty. Uh, you know, when you see some of the areas that have really grown over the last even four or five years uh, with NCAA rules and regulations, uh, something I think we're going to talk about a little bit today as well as all the name, image, and likeness issues, a lot of the sports gambling issues, uh, just in general, the, the, the legal issues that are in professional and collegiate sports have really mushroomed over the last uh, five to 10 years. And that's the period of time I've been fortunate enough uh, to be working back as a practicing lawyer with a law firm instead of working as an agent. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. So, uh, Greg, Mike and I both played sports in in college, but we were not good enough to require an agent following college. <laughs> so we didn't we need we didn't need any of our services at that point in time. Yes. But now that we're, you know, hosting this podcast and kind of gabbing about the NCAA and uh, and all the things going on, this is now a perfect time to to engage. Um, but joking in, you know, joking aside, one of the things that has happened over the last, you know, 25 plus years since, you know, Mike and I have been out of, out of school, uh, the NCAA has hit, you know, record revenues, you know, record salaries for, for the coaches and, and coaching staff. And, you know, at, at the same time, you know, the opportunities for the athletes have grown, but one would argue maybe not as, not at the same level. Um, so, so we're in this landscape now where this whole name, image, and likeness has kind of become sort of the most important sort of aspect of, of you know, getting the athletes and getting kids in school essentially to be able to, you know, make some money. Could, could you give us sort of a quick, you know, of overview of sort of where, 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 how that evolved and kind of how we got to where we are today? Sure. I mean, and that's a great question because you're 100% right. You know, we all grew up in an environment where, you know, an athlete, if you were good enough, you had an opportunity to go to college and you were thrilled to have a chance to be a scholarship athlete and have a chance to maybe have your college education paid for. Mm -hmm. And that has really seems like it's, uh, you know, prehistoric times when you look at where <laughs> things are at from a collegiate athlete perspective yeah. and where the college sports has gone. Yeah. You know, you hit the nail on the head. It's become big business. You know, the television contracts and the opportunities uh, for revenue generation have been at record highs, obviously, until we were struck by the COVID uh, virus crisis in March, which I think, again, has shown us uh, how contingent and how reliant collegiate sports is on television revenue. And that issue has sort of continued on here yeah. through the fall as we're seeing uh, some return to the playing fields for football, but with obviously very limited attendance in some states, no attendance at all. So you're seeing colleges really being hit with the lack of the revenue distribution from the NCAA basketball tournament and also now a lack of fans and a lack of, lack of revenue uh, for collegiate football. Mm -hmm. So you have this a little bit of a crisis mode going on. So your question is a great one where we had this enormous growth. We had all this revenue generation, which the student athletes were really, for the most part, not benefiting from or not participating in. And you're right when you said you've seen the enormous growth in coaches' salaries and things like that. So what's happened was there was a couple of uh, lawsuits, obviously, uh, which people sort of know about uh, over the last several years relating to the ability of student athletes to generate and receive revenue for themselves. Those lawsuits both ended yeah. up, both sides claims victory and this and that. But at the end of the day, there were some initial changes that allowed a little bit broader, what I'll call waiver ability for student athletes to secure some dollars, but in a very limited fashion. So what's happened is, as the reaction and the frustration by athletes, and you know, there's a few years ago, there was an opportunity and, an, and a desire by the Northwestern football team to try and unionize. And uh, that went a few steps, but that didn't end up going yeah, anywhere yeah. because the National Labor Relations Board, using a sports term, decided to punt on it. So they mm -hmm. never really decided that issue. So it's been lurking around for a while. 
And what happened is there was also an effort from this unionization perspective for this college student athlete rights to sort of start growing and getting some momentum. And that was essentially picked up by a legislator in the state of California uh, who did a very good job for athletes out there by introducing and ultimately getting legislation passed, uh, which was allowing student athletes to have a chance to make money off the rights to their name, image, and likeness, essentially mm -hmm. to give them a chance to go out and market themselves, to do deals, to potentially do a deal with a car right. dealership or to do camps in the summer or do private lessons, whatever they might be, to generate personal revenue. So that law was passed and kind of famously Governor Newsom signed it into law uh, with LeBron James and a bunch of other right. people around him. Right. But that law is not effective until July 1st of 2023. Mm. So in reaction to that, the NCA simultaneously has been reacting to that law and attempting, I guess the best way to put it, to, to essentially quell some of this frustration and anger about name, image, and likeness rights. So as anyone knows, the NCA being a huge legislative body, it takes some time for them to move. Um, so they introduced some proposed language initially after a group that was led uh, by Ohio State's uh, athletic director, Mr. Smith, as well as Ms. Ackerman from the Big East, and they did an excellent job, I thought, are trying to address some of these issues and concerns. They came back with some suggested initial recommendations, which was I'll call round one. We now have gone to round two in the last couple of weeks where there has been a further, um, how do I say it the right way, a further polarization of some of these issues toward an ultimate point uh, of where it's gonna be introduced and formally passed, which will be in January. So what we're being told in January, the NCA is now yeah. going to formally introduce and pass and sign off on name, image, and likeness legislation, which would then be effective, that's an important date to remember, in August of 2021. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why that becomes... Interesting. Yeah, and the reason why that becomes a very important date, because as I said very, very much in the beginning when all this started to happen, and everyone's, oh, lawyers and this and that, I said, yeah, right now, most of the law, uh, law and legal issues are in parallel tracks. But once some of these states have passed the legislation, now the NCAA, if that happens in January, you're going to have those legal issues starting to cross paths. And what I mean by that is now all of a sudden, the state of Florida, who in addition to a few other states has passed legislation in addition to California, but what's interesting about Florida's legislation, that's going to be effective as of July 1 in 2021. So in theory, Florida will have the first piece of legislation, even though California was the first to pass it, Florida will have the first enacted date of name, image, and likeness legislation. Now, why that's interesting is because obviously if you're the NCAA and they've come out already publicly and said, we cannot successfully regulate and, and deal with multiple states, multiple state regulations and laws, especially within certain states, you have more than one college that'll be affected by it and more than one conference that'll be affected by it. Exactly. So if you look yep. at Florida, right, you got the SEC, you got the ACC, um, as well as other conferences that are going to be dealing with this. So what happens? How do we deal with this come July 1? Does the NCAA do a preemptive strike, as we talked about and heard about potential into the Commerce Clause and try and get some type of injunctive relief in federal court? Well, if you're running a federal court in Florida, I don't know if you're going to find many federal judges that are going to be too sympathetic to the NCAA. So it's, it's going to be really, really interesting to see what happens. But then if you take a step back from that, and I apologize for this long-winded answer, but if you take a step back from that, that's why everyone is hoping the federal government, we've already seen multiple pieces of federal legislation be introduced for consideration. Everyone is hoping that the feds are going to act long before July 1 of 2021 to, in theory, preempt all the state laws that are either pending or have been, or been passed, as well as essentially preempting the NCAA bylaws, which would not become effective until August, even if they are essentially enacted in January. So you have really multiple different constituencies that are all seeking some type of redress and some type of affirmative action, um, either on the state level, the NCAA level, or the federal level. And I think secretly, everyone's hoping the federal level will end up being the solution because otherwise we are going to have what I call a litigator's dream where litigation lawyers are going to be lining up to handle all these different cases 
uh, with everyone's rights are going to be affected. Yeah. So. Yeah. So just to take a quick step back, so part of why the name, image, and likeness thing is sort of the thing, I think most of it, most of it is, you know, coming from this, you know, Ed O'Bannon case, right? Because that, That's that where was, it all started. you know, his, his image and likeness was used in a, in a, in a, in a video game. Right. And so, and so, and so then, you know, California, and of course he played at UCLA, although I think he's been living in Phoenix, if I'm not mistaken, or Las Vegas. He, he he was one of the sort of first ones to kind of raise raise awareness and kind of push back on this, right? So th- this was the wave, I would guess, for the for the states to sort of, you know, put some you know put some light between this whole issue around what's amateurism and you know what the schools and the NCA can do, right? And for how long they can do that with with their athletes, right? You make a, you make a great point because that's one of the arguments that the NCA has tried to hold on to for really an extended period of time, which is protecting these goals of amateurism. Uh, and the problem with that from the public's perspective is, yeah, that sounds good, but you're paying coaches six, seven, eight million dollars a year. Coaches have equipment deals and apparel deals with Nike and Under Armour. Uh, you know, schools are making money off of this and that and everything else. But yet the student athletes are being boxed out. And the way they're being boxed out, again, is under this theory of amateurism which is one which has a lot of merit, but the issue that are, that are sort of arises here is that name, image, and likeness rights are not the same as pay for play. And a lot of people get that confused, which is that the NCAA, in theory, through any name, image, and likeness rights, would not be authorizing the payment of the student athlete for playing the sport that they're performing in. So if I'm a basketball player and I'm a basketball player at Duke, Duke is not paying me to play basketball. Right. The name, image, and likeness column is because I'm playing basketball at Duke, I might have interest from different people to endorse a product, to have an opportunity, as I said earlier, to you know participate in a camp, to host a camp, to do private shooting lessons, to be a uh, paid to be a social influencer on Instagram or some other media platform. Uh, that's what's happening. But that would not, in theory affect amateur status from most people's perspective right because i'm not getting paid specifically for playing my sport i'm getting payment for my skills unrelated to my performance in theory as an amateur athlete right right and so you've you've also mentioned uh you know some of these you know you know different states and you know my understanding is the the ncaa would would love to avoid the you know kind of the insurance issue right where like insurance is is you know guided by every state and every insurance department in the in the in the state, so they would rather not deal with fifty jurisdictions if they don't have to. Correct. So they're trying to move one hundred right. This is right. Um, however, what what are what are the what are the states' positions? You know, are are they also wanting to move this to the federal level? Uh, does that well, you know, then give them enough flexibility to do what they think is right? You know, it's interesting. This has been a real. Uh, example, I guess, for all of us as we go through such a um, a lovely amount of discord, and I use that word lovely in quotes, discord on a federal and state level among our legislators, right? We have people in Washington, we have people running for president right now, and the bottom line is there's a lot of just really animosity as opposed to attacking each other party's views, etc. probably more than I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. But what's interesting about the name, image, and likeness situation uh, certainly in the last year or two, it's one of the unique situations where there is absolute bipartisan support. I have not heard of one state where any language uh, for potential legislation that has been introduced that does not either have bipartisan introduction to the bill or bipartisan support for the bill once it's introduced. So it's become a real, and I don't mean it to be disrespectful to any legislator, but it's become a real hot button photo opportunity issue to introduce legislation because everyone for the most part supports it. Everyone endorses a student athlete should be able to do uh, and have a summer camp where they're hosting young kids and getting paid for it uh, at its most basic level or everyone endorses the, the right of a student athlete who's on social media to get paid for being an influencer, perhaps of a product. So what's happened is 
all the states have, in theory, supported that. Now, some states, not necessarily any that have passed the legislation yet, but for example, a very controversial piece of legislation that's been introduced and has been stalled because of the reaction to it is in New York, where in New York, the state senator who introduced that legislation has proposed a tax that each college would pay based on the amount of ticket revenue that's generated for all their sports. And they would take a percentage of that tax, and I'm calling it a tax, uh, and then distribute it on an equitable fashion to all student athletes. So the person who's the star football quarterback or the person who serves as the coxswain of the crew team would get an equal share of this redistributed revenue stream that's being created Mm -hmm. uh, by the tax on the threshold for the ticket sales. So the question becomes in that circumstance, Clearly, then, the universities and the colleges would have an issue because if you're going to be paying direct dollars to student-athletes based upon some revenue stream from ticket sales, you're probably going to be in a position where you are essentially going to be making those student-athletes now employees of the university. Right. Right. You're taking university revenue, distributing it to the student-athletes on an annualized basis. So that was one state law which has been heavily discussed, heavily criticized, especially in the college community, uh, because most schools will tell you they don't make money uh, on ticket sales. And and with regard, most um, operational issues relating to college athletics are flat or or operate at a loss. So that one was a really interesting one and a very controversial one, because again, most people felt that did cross the line. And then there were issues with regard to taxation? Do we have to give tax advice to these student athletes? Do we have to issue them some type of a a, a distribution type thing for tax purposes uh, that they are getting paid? And how does that run contrary to NCAA rules and regulations? So that's an example of one state that most people think that they've gone too far. Wow. There's just, it's interesting angles to this where you've got the bipartisan support and then you've got some legislators that are looking to rally from that and, and gain even more, maybe support with their constituents. Um, that's helpful to hear those, those perspective, Greg. Could, could we shift over to how the, the spaghetti plate of issues when you look at this from, you know, the schools, the conferences, you go cross state lines, what, what are some of the major issues there that, that the schools and conferences and states are kind of juggling to, to make some sense of this in, in the, at the current time? Yeah, well, like I said initially, you know, everything when it first started to happen was a little bit more of a parallel track where everyone thought, oh, this is fine. We can support this. We can support that. We'll wait and see what happens. But the issues, if you really think about it, the great concern that the NCA has voiced very much from the very beginning Going, be, going back even before there was, you know, cleverly known as NIL rights, um, there was always a concern and has always been a concern in collegiate athletics about the impact and the power of sponsors, essentially, or boosters, as they're more well, more well known as, yeah. to impact yeah. and influence student-athletes, right? We've always, going back to our youth, always heard rumors about so-and-so got paid to go to school right. there, so-and-so you know, had a no-show job by the university where he got paid $100 an hour to turn the sprinklers on. There were automatic sprinklers on the football field. You know, things like that. You always heard about them. So there's always been a concern about the impact of what I'll call the booster aspect of things. So one of the things that really scared the NCAA, and I think rightfully so, was as we expand upon name, image, and likeness rights, how do we, and this is the term we keep hearing, how do we create guardrails to protect, for the most part, our amateurization model, while at the same time granting these name, image, and likeness rights to student-athletes? How do we prevent a huge booster, you know, the big car dealer in in Town X, from finding out who's being recruited and going to that recruit and sort of saying, hey, come here, you'll be my spokesperson for as long as you're in school, and I'll pay you $100,000 a year to be that spokesperson. Great concern um, that has been raised, and frankly, think about it, it does make a lot of sense because if I'm a 17 or 18 year old and I have an opportunity pursuant to state law in a certain state with certain schools uh, to go to that state and play there and have a chance to make money really for nothing other than playing my sport and I'm being recruited by another school who's in the same conference who does not have any state law that authorizes name, image, and likeness rights, all of a sudden we have an inconsistent and a lack of a level playing field 
where you could have two or three or four schools in the same conference who have name, image, and likeness rights because of the states they're based in versus four, five, six, seven other schools in the same conference who do not have name, image, and likeness rights based upon their state laws. So the conferences are very concerned about this inconsistency because obviously the states that have the law that protects name, image, and likeness rights could be at a huge advantage. Uh, and I, let's be honest, if the three of us were had been good enough athletes, you would certainly consider an opportunity to go to a school where I would get a scholarship and also have an opportunity to market myself while I'm playing my sport versus another school I might like, but I can't market myself. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm pretty sure I saw the governor of Florida marketing this as a competitive advantage for his schools. And I think he actually Absolutely. stated that, you know, this comes, you know, effective July 1st next year. So start considering Florida schools. <laughs> you are absolutely right. And he's he's been very proud of that uh, because, again, he was behind this and he was behind a, a much more early, a much earlier effective date. In fact, he, he wondered why these other states were waiting till 2023. And if you speak to the state senator from California, who's a, a really bright and really well-motivated, well-intentioned purpose who introduced this legislation, um, her goal, and she said this publicly, was hoping that by introducing this legislation and even passing it, it would create pressure on the NCAA to react and create name, image, and likeness rights that protected the student athletes and the rights of those student athletes. But unfortunately, I believe her initial goal of accomplishing that has come up short because everyone believes that what's going to be issued and introduced formally in January will not be equal to the, the breadth of the name, image, and likeness rights that all the states want. So that's, that's the issue. Her goal was to motivate the NCAA. And while it might have motivated them, the question is, has it motivated them far enough where it's gonna satisfy the various states, number one? And then on top of that, is it gonna satisfy the various federal legislators who are kind of laying in wait here uh, to see what happens, even though there's been multiple pieces of legislation introduced, I don't think we're going to see anything on that legislation until after the election and obviously into January and February yeah. of 2021. One of the things that, that you know, we're, we're not clear what impact this is going to have, obviously, you know, across the board yet, but any thoughts on what this means for, you know, Title IX, how it impacts revenue generating sports and kind of, you know, maybe a different framework even for uh, male versus female athletes. Is, is, that, is that under consideration in any, in any way at this point? Well, the, the interesting part, that's a great question. You know, the Title IX aspect of it would probably be untouched from the perspective of outside opportunities for student athletes, right? If a car dealership wants to pay a female volleyball player or a male basketball player, that is not really a Title IX issue because it's not derived or generated from the school itself. Where we're seeing a major Title IX concern and issue arising is a little bit more related to COVID in the sense that as universities and colleges across the country are seeing a drop in revenue, some schools are seeing a drop in students because a lot of students took a gap year this year to see what happens with COVID. Right. A lot of students have just took a semester off. So a lot of schools are down enrollment rise, which that drop of enrollment obviously creates a drop in revenue. Uh, the other thing is with athletic programs, who now would might want to tap into the schools, they can't do that because the school revenue is down. And as I mentioned earlier, most athletic programs and their athletic budgets are in a drastic position of loss and not being able to operate or operating at huge budget deficits. So what a number of schools have been forced to do is literally eliminate sports. So there's been a lot of discussion and I know the federal government's gonna be looking at this very closely uh, from a compliance perspective, because there's certain aspects of Title IX which talk about proportionality and essentially equal opportunity for male and female athletes, and that's in very much an overgeneralization. But my point is, as schools start to eliminate sports because they don't have the revenue streams to right. pay for some of these non-revenue generating sports themselves, which in the past they've been able to afford to do, there is a potential impact from a Title IX perspective where if we just if we take away too much too many sports on the male side or on the female side, whatever it might be, we might put ourselves in a position where we are no longer in proportionality and we could set ourselves up for some Title IX issues. So unfortunately, 
the Title IX issues are less arising from the name, image, and likeness perspective of things. The Title IX issues are potentially arising and being considered, certainly, or should certainly being be considered by schools as they consider this drop in revenue and these deficits in their budgets uh, as, unfortunately, uh, a cause and effect for dropping some student-athlete sports uh, and impacting those student-athletes. So it's, a, it's an interesting dilemma right now. Yeah, and that was that's a great segue into my next question, which was, you know, the difference between kind of marquee versus Olympic sports, right, and um, and the impact on all of that, which which I think is is interesting. Um, you know, a school like Stanford clearly cut a bunch of sports, yes. even though they were making you know national championship, you know, national championship caliber athletes, and they were you know winning winning um, you know medals at international sports but they just decided well it's, you know men's volleyball I suppose is not making any money or whatever so they're so they're cutting it out right and it's, and it's really horrible because you know the, the NCA model obviously is, is the goal of, of developing young student athletes but also developing them as good adults and utilizing collegiate sports as a base for that yeah absolutely and, you know yeah. just because you're not playing in front of 80,000 people or 20,000 people in an arena, the value of that collegiate experience uh, is wonderful. So the, the loss of that opportunity, in my mind, is really tragic. But at the same point, you have to understand from a fiscal perspective, schools and higher education are a business, no different than any other business. And while you certainly can you know, operate at a, at a deficit for a certain period of time, you know, this is not a situation where they can, like the federal government, just go float some more bonds and bring some revenue in. These schools are in a tough spot. And what's the interesting aspect of this is I think all of us had hoped in March, oh, by the end of the summer, this will be all gone. We won't have to deal with it. But now what's happened, we've seen schools dealing with it as an impact for their quote unquote budget for the 2020-2021 school year already having a drastic impact. And if the virus and the impact of it, like we're seeing spikes around the country now, continues into the spring of 2021, and potentially into the fall of 2021. Uh, again, thinking of an academic year as being part of two calendar years, yeah. it really will have a drastic financial impact that frankly, uh, although no one likes it or wants to hear about it, there are economic realities that are gonna be faced by schools in all aspects, whether it's professors, whether it's programs, uh, and not only in the athletic area, but certainly the athletic area is gonna be an area that everyone's gonna focus on because as you said, a school like Stanford eliminating sports makes headlines and is a big story. Whereas if a school you know drops a professor or two, except within the circle of that school, it's not going to be a headline story the same way sports is. You know, Greg, what's what surfaced for me here is that there's you know a bundle of things where folks are, are, are reaching agreement or they're they're seeing that they have to be solved, and there's going to be others that are contentious and be negotiated. What I'm wondering, uh, at the risk of getting tactical and down into the weeds, I'm wondering is there, do you think there's going to be consensus around the implementation? And by that I ask, I've seen some stuff around if a school is a Nike school, will there be clarity around whether an athlete can sign with Adidas and do something around that? Um, and then the other part of that is, do you see, are you seeing consensus around how kind of um, – vice type of deals will be, um, you know, excluded as opportunities. And maybe that's uh, alcohol deals or, or vaping or gambling. Are you, are you seeing clarity around those things across all these constituents? I think in your latter point, I do think there's consensus. I don't think on any platform, state, federal, mm -hmm. or NCAA, you're going to see authorization for student athletes to endorse marijuana, mm -hmm. for example. I don't think there's going to be, even if it's an illegalized state, I think there's going to be a prohibition okay. against it. I don't think you're going to see student athletes, you know, being okay to stand in front of DraftKings and say, you know, we're playing Saturday night, come down and, you know, bet on me. I don't think we're going to see any of that. I don't think it's going to be authorized. And frankly, I don't think, you know, I say DraftKings mm -hmm. just as an example, but I don't think any of the gambling uh, situations are going to be wanting to advocate that as well. So I do think there's consensus on all levels about certain restrictions, marijuana, smoking, vaping, you know, gambling. Uh, we've heard about uh, also strip joints sure. and things like that. I do think there'll be a consensus on not having any of those areas being permitted endorsements for name, image, and likeness rights. The initial thing you mentioned is an interesting one. 
because that's a little bit inconsistent right now, depending upon the states and how the feds come down and everything else. Um, if a school is a Nike school, is a student athlete going to be able to endorse Adidas? I would say ultimately the answer to that question okay. is going to be no. Uh, I don't think any of the states or any of the legislation that's being discussed is going to authorize that. What they will authorize and endorse is the possibility of consistency and continuity with that, with that school having the contract that it has. And the one that always comes to mind originally with me is Oregon. You know, Oregon is a huge Nike school. So, you know, does Nike turn around and offer a deal to every student athlete who attends and, and plays a varsity sport in Oregon? Mm. I don't know, but it's certainly a possibility um, or it's certainly feasible. You know, you think about Zion Williamson, you know, when he was at Duke as a freshman, how do we protect Zion Williamson? Because at the end of the day, if I'm Nike and I'm a Nike school and I see a superstar, I'm sure as heck going to be able to save a lot of money if I attempt to lock up Zion Williamson before he's had a chance to really showcase himself, I know he's a superstar, but I can get him a lot cheaper when he's in November of his freshman year of his one and done year before I allow him to continue and become the number one draft pick in the NBA right. draft. So, you know, there's, there's issues on both sides. Uh, and unfortunately we've already seen that where Zion is involved in a, a very nasty lawsuit where marketing representatives and his current agency and everything else, everybody's fighting uh, because it's big money, big dollars. And yeah, the situation yeah. you're going to have here is, you know, student athletes, again, once you open the Pandora's box, and I believe without speaking for them, this is the NCAA's concern that we can open the Pandora's box. But once we open it, how are we going to, as I said earlier, create these guardrails to make sure we do preserve and protect the amateurism goal while at the same time allowing, you know, I think the goal would be allowing a female volleyball player, as I said before, maybe if she's has an opportunity to model, has an opportunity to parlay her volleyball success into some other chance to make five thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars during her four years of college, that's wonderful. Uh, and I think that's what most people and more people will be able to benefit from. I think the you know if you think back to Johnny Manziel in college or Tim Tebow, those are going to be the exceptions. Um, those are the rarities and those are the superstar athletes. But the name, image, and likeness rights, I think, are really aimed and are going to be utilized by more of the smaller athletes. And I don't mean necessarily in size or stature, smaller in the sense of they're not the national superstars. But, you know, in certain where they're from, they might have a chance, as I keep saying, to host camps and do private lessons and do sure. things where in the small town where they're playing sports, they are an mm -hmm. iconic sports figure. Yeah. Greg, the obvious question for me here, quite honestly, is, you know, we're assuming that day one of all this starts, you know, the day that this athlete walks on the campus. But w what stops an athlete getting a Nike deal junior year in high school? Well, that's an interesting area and one that no one I've talked about it. And now you are asking me about it, which I think is a fascinating area. And the one that can't, comes to mind initially and the one I've mentioned before is LeBron James's son, for example. He already has a national following, Yeah. right? He seems like he's a heck of a basketball player, obviously playing uh, essentially in his dad's shadow, same last name as his dad. I'm sure there would be companies that would love to do marketing deals with LeBron James's son. My understanding, I think he's only a rising junior this year in high school. What's to say? Now, most of these state laws that are written talk about collegiate athletes and a lot of them don't even cover junior college or community college athletes right. which are being addressed right. usually language in there that says it will be addressed but once you open and i keep using the expression the pandora's box there's going to be high school athletes who have the skill level and the endorsement potential that companies might be very interested in them how do you stop that student athlete from benefiting from the state or federal same fate same state excuse me a federal law that the college athletes are benefiting from. Great question, and one we're going to have to see play out. I I, I think so, and I'm and I'm and I swear to God, I'm not asking this for my own purpose, <laughs> Greg. But I have I have a six two freshman daughter who is in high school now, right? She's a freshman high school volleyball player. You know, after her sophomore year, so basically in roughly you know eighteen months or so colleges are going to be able to reach out to her and talk to her about, you know, Absolutely. potentially playing there. Right. Um, 
you know, who's who's to say that somebody like that can't also be reached by, like you said, you know, the the dealer in, let's say, you know, L.A. because he wants my daughter to go to play UCLA or someplace like that, right? Um, well, the other issue with that, too, like we talked about a few minutes ago, who's to say, and I use the Zion example, who's to say, and I keep picking on Nike, but who's to say that Nike doesn't say, oh, my God, look at this woman. She's an incredible athlete. She's tall. She's beautiful. She's incredibly intelligent. We want her part of the Nike team. And yeah. she's only 16. Yeah. yeah. What's to say? And they might offer her a lot of money, but who's to say that's the right amount of money? Or do they specifically target her and say, hey, listen, we're going to give you something that's never been done before. And meanwhile, without representation, she's undervalued herself. And basically the Nikes of the world or other companies take advantage of that because it's a business. So how sure. do we protect sure. that student athlete as well? There's that um, as well. So that's yeah. another dilemma. Yeah. And it's one we're going to be dealing with because you are 100% right. You're going to be seeing, I mean, think about it. If you look at Instagram or Nike, I'm sorry, or, uh, on ESPN rather, and you're seeing a lot of student athletes, they're talking about, for example, Arch Manning. Yeah. He's yeah. a sophomore. And they're talking about him and they're televising right. his football games. I'm sure he's marketable right now. Yeah. His name, image, and yeah. likeness rights are passed. Why can't he benefit from those as well? Um, so anyway, there's, there are a lot of issues that, again, once these rights begin to be able to be taken advantage of, where do they stop? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How, do they go far? How far do they go? Yeah, as our, as our final question here, uh, we've kind of peeled a couple of layers of the onion here, but it sounds like a, a lot is coming up. And you've, you've alluded to the fact that, you know, 2021 seems to be a year where a lot of things are going to start um, un, un, unwinding. If you can just sort of summarize for the, for the close here, you know, what are, what are kind, of the, kind of the big things that we should be looking out for in, you know, 2021 and uh, some of the timing around that? Sure. I think the first thing you want to look at is what does the NCAA do? How far do they go with these name, image, and likeness rights? They foreshadowed it for us. They've made some modifications to it. How far do they go? So I think that's something to look at here in January um, and see how far they go. Based upon how far they go, how do the states react? Do we see an increase beyond the five states we have now? Do we see it grow to 10 or 15 states that are certainly passing name, image, and likeness rights, and when do they become effective? Does Florida remain the only state that has an effective tool as of July 1? And then, of course, the third thing is, what do the feds do? How quickly do the feds react? What's going to be the mandates that people are going to want in a federal piece of legislation before the senators uh, and the other members of the Congress will sign off on it? The other important issue, I think, while that is all going on in column A, and maybe it's really column B because column A is COVID. Uh, yeah. And it's going to be really interesting to see is right now, as I would say, we're in a hangover phase and maybe not even to the hangover phase. Maybe we're still in the, and I don't feel good phase of it, right? Where we're having spikes all over the country, uh, horrendous indications that this is not slowing down or going away. What does that do to collegiate sports? We just saw today, you know, cancelization, canceling, canceling of a game involving a Wisconsin uh, in Nebraska for this weekend, we're seeing more positive tests of student athletes. Are we able to host, most importantly from a revenue point of view, the NCAA basketball tournament? Yeah. Does that take place in March of 2021? Because if it doesn't, it's going to really, I believe, have a cataclysmic, cataclysmic effect on student and student athletes and sports. Uh, because again, without that revenue stream, we've already seen the impact of cancellation for one year cancellation for a second year, I believe, would really have a drastic impact on where college sports are headed. So let's keep our fingers crossed that we can stay and get through this COVID nightmare that we're in and hopefully get some of these spikes reduced and allow student athletes to play. But those are the two columns that I look at very closely. Uh, one is the impact of name, image, and likeness rights. What do we see from the NCAA, other states, and the feds, and how do they act, and what's going to happen in terms of the interaction of those three issues? And then the other column is the COVID impact. And what does that do, especially as we get into the cold months here? What is that going to mean for, for college basketball and the NSA wow. tournament? So many moving parts, Greg. So Lots many moving parts. We, we appreciate you filling us in on, on a lot of the different things here. And we have a number of things to watch out for, it looks like, over the next uh, couple quarters. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because it's going to move. You know, as we always say, there's a hurry up and wait. 
well, we've been hurry up and waiting, but now the wait's almost over and we're going to see uh, what's going to take place here because a lot of these issues are time sensitive in the sense that the NCA has announced they're going to do it in January. The feds have already said that they have pending legislation. You have Senator Booker from New Jersey and the two Connecticut senators who have what they're calling a college bill of rights. They've foreshadowed it, they've teased it, uh, but they haven't introduced it yet. So that's there, that's ready to happen. And that's going to really be an extensive bill of rights that's going to give student athletes a lot of rights that frankly, they're not going to have through the NCAA legislation. So again, this could happen literally in the first few months of 2021 and have a drastic impact on college sports the way we know it. We'll be tracking it. We'll be tracking it. Greg, thank you so much for all your energy and your um, feedback on all our questions. Stay safe. Appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Cheers. All right, Vlad, I've got our come on man for this week. And I'll I'll say it, it originates with an NCAA origination. Um, but but we're going to tie it into some business too. So so work with me on this one. Okay, so you know so that we're, we're at, staying we're staying with the NCA loop here, right? Yeah, it, it, it originates there, but it, it okay. gets more expansive than that. Let's just see. as a, okay. a heads up. Okay, so you know that ad campaign by Dosekis, the most interesting man in the world. Do you remember that? <laughs> stay thirsty, my friend. Yeah, stay that thirsty. That one, right? Fun, <laughs> super fun. Okay, well I'm going to give you. I'm going to put up a guy. I'm going to nominate him for the most interesting athlete in the world. Okay. okay. Right now. Okay. So this young man, he started his career as a defensive back on a Division One football team, and then he next moved his career into being the star shooting guard on that university's basketball team and walked away from football. Then okay. this young man moves on to the NBA, plays eleven years. Seven teams, averages 11 points, wins three slam dunk contests in his career. I'm not telling you who yet. I'm not telling you who. He's been retired from the NBA for several years. He's played overseas for a couple years. But yet this man is the most, I'm nominating him for the most interesting athlete in the world because, do you know that uh, that fight that Mike Tyson has later this year? Right? In, uh, yes. in November. And we've, yes. we've, we've said we're staying hands off on Mike Tyson for now. Yeah. On the undercard, this most interesting athlete in the world is now going to box on the undercard. Come on, man. I I kid you not. (laughs) This this guy comes out of your backyard. This man is five foot nine. Okay. And remember I said three slam dunk contests. Five foot nine, Nate Robinson. Wow. Nate Robinson will be fighting I was, on I the undercard. I almost said Charlie Ward. I almost said Charlie Ward until yeah. you until you went until you went. You know, he won the slam dunk championships. Yep. I'm like, I don't think Charlie Ward won any slam dunk championships. But but five foot nine slam dunk contest winner three yep. times. So dynamic yep. athlete, fantastic. Eleven years played seven teams, but yet he's on the undercard for the Mike Tyson night in November. I think it's at SoFi or Dignity Health Stadium down what? there in LA. So why? Why? Like it's I'm, like he's you, the most you, he's the most interesting athlete in the world right this, now. You know the fact that this other gentleman is coming <laughs> on and is going to do the preview. Yeah, on the, the undercard preview round. Is Nate Robinson. Very interesting. I mean, come that's on. That's my man. come on man. Yeah, he's ready to go. And then he says that's his showcase to get back into the NBA, which is yet another come on man, <laughs> okay. in my opinion. <laughs> so. <laughs> So how is, about that? Is is he going to fight Bo Jackson? So Bo Jackson go back to baseball or something? I, something. I, mean, I don't know. But, oh, Dion, maybe get Dion Sanders yeah, in there, like Dion, always, uh, yeah. and then yeah, make the before. NBA again. That's my showcase. Yeah. So wow. there we go. Awesome. That's it, Vlad. Awesome. Well, great show. Another great show. Um, for those of you um, who are still here to listen to all of this wonderful come on, man, that we have at the end of the show, um, thank you. Uh, please subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell your family, tell everybody, leave us a comment or send us a note about things you'd like us uh, to talk about. And uh, Mike, another good show. It was a good one. We'll uh, we'll catch you another time here, Vlad, and our listeners. Good game. See you next time. Good game. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>